Thank you very much, Southland team. We had the privilege of hearing them at church and praising the Lord with them yesterday morning. Unfortunately, my son was not feeling all that well during the service, and my wife was in nursery, so he and I got to enjoy the the worship service uh, from the back hallway. But he still stayed in tune with what was going on. And pretty much every single song that was sung by the Southland team, he looked up at me with his big brown eyes, and he said, that's a good one. So, I thought so too, but I don't put too much stock in his musical expertise as an eight-year-old. Imagine, if you would with me, that you are on a hike with a group going up to the top of a mountain. And after several hours of hiking with inclines and cutbacks and all that, you begin to realize that the terrain around you is getting narrower as you're coming kind of towards the peak. But through the trees on either side, you have yet to actually see any sights as the fog is still there early in the morning. Eventually, because there are complainers in every hiking group, it's the law, people start to talk about the difficulty of the hike the lack of the view that was promised, the lack of cell phone reception, thus you cannot post things to Instagram. Eventually, the organizer of the hike says, don't worry, it will be worth it. And so you persevere just a little bit further, and suddenly, as you come towards a clearing up at the top, as if it were planned, the sun starts to come up on the hillside on the other side. The fog quickly dissipates, and everyone, including the complainers, stands there in awe at the beauty and the grandeur of what they are seeing. When we come to our text of Psalm 8 today, that is how all of us should feel. Because just like those complainers who are so concerned about their experience and comfort, how that complaining went by the wayside when they saw the grandeur of the sight, so too we, whatever we are bringing this morning, as we come to the Word of God and see God's grandeur displayed in this psalm, all of that is going to fade away. And I hope at the end we all have one response, and that is, wow, what a great God we serve. Psalm chapter 8, or sorry, Psalm 8, you notice the superscription, we think it was written by David, good idea there. But I imagine David, because what he is about to tell us, he probably just got done with his Bible reading or his Torah reading for the morning. Because what it sounds like he is doing in this passage is really meditating and reflecting on Genesis chapter 1 and God's creation of everything and God's special creation of man. And that has led him to start off with, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. But there are some interesting things about Psalm 8 that you need to know before we read it so that you can pay attention to it as we read. Did you know that it is the only one of the Psalms that talks exclusively to God? Other Psalms are directed at God, but then it gives some type of encouragement to us. So all of you, praise God. 
Or I start talking to myself again and I say, okay, so my soul, hope in God. Or this is what God does, but no, this is all spoken to God. Kind of secure us into what the message is. But there's also a pattern that it follows. And so as I read, try to figure out what the pattern is. Verse 1. O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is thy name in all the earth. Who, or because, you have set your glory upon, above the heavens. Out of the mouths of babes and sucklings hast thou ordained strength because of thine enemies, that thou mightest still the enemy and the avenger. When I consider the heavens, the work of thy fingers, the moon and the stars which thou hast ordained, what is man that thou art mindful of him, and the son of man that thou visitest him? For thou hast made him a little lower than the angels, and crowned him with glory and honor. Thou hast made him to have dominion over the works of thy hands. Thou hast put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and yea, the beasts of the field, the flower of the air, and the fish of the sea, and whatsoever passes through the paths of the sea. O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is thy name in all the earth. This psalm is a psalm of great structure. And its structure actually helps us to understand what is going on. So I want to point your, your eyes to two things. First of all, do you notice how it starts and how it ends? O oh Lord, our Lord, how excellent is thy name in all the earth. There's a fancy name for that. I'm not even going to say it. But then there's a better, more memorable way to understand what's going on. For instance, if I were to read a list of ingredients, can you tell me, what I am talking about. Milk chocolate, specifically sugar and cocoa butter and chocolate and skim milk and lactose and milk fat, peanuts, corn syrup, sugar, palm oil, skim milk, lactose, salt, egg whites, and artificial flavor. What have I just described? Sugar. What was that? How did you know? I just described a Snickers bar. Do you know what is great? When I went to Quick Trip this morning, and by the way, showed great restraint by not getting any glazed donuts, okay? This is all that I got there. When I went there this morning and I saw the list of things on the candy bar aisle, I did not have to guess by list of ingredients what it was. Do you know why? Because the packaging that completely surrounds it tells me exactly what it is. This is a Snickers bar. All right, that's what you get for sitting in the front row. It's the only thing I have to give. I am no Aaron Jones. We have that same idea of rapping here in chapter in Psalm 8. It begins and ends with it, which means everything that it's talking about somehow is magnifying God. Structure point number two. Look at verse four. What is man that thou art mindful of him, and the son of man that thou visiteth him? You remember when Mr. Herbster was introducing Psalm to us and he talked about Hebrew poetry being not rhymes as far as how it sounds, but parallel in the statements that it has? And that makes sense to us because we're in Proverbs, right, in our small group studies, and you have all the contrasting parallels and things like that. This right here is what you would call synonymous, or as close as we can get to it. It's saying the same thing twice. Why do you say the same thing twice? Because you want somebody to consider what you're saying. 
So we have the outside, which is all about God, which is then focusing our attention on the inside, which is all about what we look like to God. But all of this leads to one key truth. And the key truth can be summarized in four words. So are you ready? God declares his grandeur. God declares his grandeur. You say, well, that's a funny word. That doesn't find itself in the text. I know. We have the word excellent. It means majesty. It means honor. It means bigness. It means a whole lot of things. And I've chosen to talk about it in the word grandeur. Why? Because it reminds me of that hike. And when you see the beautiful mountains, you're just like, wow, isn't that big? Isn't that impressive? And that is what God is declaring to us. You say, well, Andrew... Um, It's a little bit silly because this is David writing. This isn't God speaking. But David is not declaring God to be grand. David is just recognizing what God has already revealed. Notice what it says again, bottom half of the first verse. Because, or you who has set thy glory above the heavens. It means because you have set. God himself has declared himself in creation. And he's declared himself to be grand. So we, at the end of this, need to be just like the hikers. Wow, God. Because that's what the structure is pointing us to. But what does that body of the psalm teach us? It actually talks about how God shows his grandeur. This isn't the only ways. Redemption is not talked about in this passage. The conclusion of history, where Christ reigns supreme, is not talked about. And aren't those things that show God's grandeur? Instead, David focuses on just two truths. How does God declare his grandeur? Number one, we see in verse two, God declares his grandeur by using the weak to confound the wise. Using the weak to confound the strong. Verse two. Out of the mouths of babes and sucklings, out of toddlers and infants, which of course we know is the fountain of all wisdom and intelligibility, correct? It's like when I had little, when my little sister, which by the way, it's her birthday today, she is younger than me, I forget how old, but when she was young, much, much younger, and I was the older 10-year-old, and she was about two or three years old, she would talk to people at church, and I would be her interpreter. And I will tell you, rarely did I actually understand what was being said. I just, when the people looked at me, I'm like, she likes you, okay? (laughs) Just tell something. But God uses that in contrast to his enemies, to the avengers, to those who are strong and mighty. And what this verse tells us is how God can take sometimes the unintelligible babblings of a toddler. And because of God use those to completely stop his enemies in his tracks. God uses the weak to confound the strong. And this makes sense when we think of the rest of our Bible. I just chose three Old Testament and one New Testament example. Genesis 14, Abraham and 318 men defeat a coalition of five kings. Judges chapter 7, Gideon and 300 men defeat the hordes of Midian. 1 Samuel 17, young David defeated a battle-hardened Goliath. God uses weak things. 
But the New Testament example, 1 Corinthians 4, 7. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels, that the excellency of the power of God may be of God and not of us. You want to see one of the most amazing New Testament era things that God does to use the weak to confound the strong? Just look at the believer who's trying to share the gospel. God uses the weak. Hinting at some of our application, this should give us a lot of confidence. Because what that means is it's not up to my strength. What it means is as long as I am on God's side, God plus me equals a majority. Because God always has the majority. God always has the power. God declares his, his grandeur. He uses the weak to confound the strong. And that leads David's mind to then consider another weak thing that God has chosen to pay attention to. And we see that beginning in verse 3. Second, God pays attention to man. You say, wait, God pays attention to babies, and now we're talking about God comparing me to a baby and a weak thing? Yeah. When it comes down to it, what is man? What is man, as verse 3 says, when I consider thy thy heavens, the work of thy fingers, the moon and the stars which thou hast ordained, what is man that you think of him? And the Son of Man, that you should visit him. David looks at the grandeur of God and what God is declaring, and he looks at himself and he says, I'm missing something here. And so he seeks God. David's eyes scan the heavens, kind of like my eyes scanned the heavens last night. Did you see the moon the last two nights? I walked out on my front desk deck after, uh, my back deck after makes it sound like I have two decks. I only have one deck. It's in the back, I'm pretty sure. I walked out of my deck last night at church, after church, and I saw the moon, and it was over the trees, and it was stunning. And this morning, I'm in my office, which faces the front of my house. I'm looking out the window, reading this text, and I was up earlier enough. You know it is dark still in the morning, okay? I was up early enough to see the moon on the other side. And I love the moon. It is so fascinating to look at. You see it and it is beautiful. And then I look at this. And I also should ask the same question. Who am I, God, that you should pay attention to me? I already mentioned that this is synonymous parallelism. We're meant to really reflect on what's happening here. And notice the two words that are used, man and son of man. There is a normal way for describing a person, man, in Hebrew. This is not it. There is a normal way for describing a strong man, somebody of great capacity, and this is not it. These two phrases come together really to emphasize David's own frailty. The fact that he isn't anything special. But notice the two actions of God that are paralleled. The first one has to do with being mindful. It simply means to remember. What is man that you remember him? But does it really mean remembering when we're talking about the omniscient God? God can't forget. It's kind of the opposite of being omniscient. He always knows. But in our Old Testament, this idea of remembering isn't just God knowing. It's God taking that concept and putting it in front of his eyes 
so that he is gazing and watching. It's the focus of his attention. God just doesn't remember. He focuses his attention on us. The second word is to visit, which means something a little bit different today, doesn't it? I went visiting. It means that you ate somebody's food, probably when they didn't want you to. But when the Old Testament uses it, it's God coming down to act either in judgment or to act in care. In this case, it has the idea of care. Ruth chapter 1, verse 5, it talks about how God visited Israel and then relieved them of the famine. He provided or cared for them and gave them food. Who are we that God would focus and care on us? Have you ever asked a question to somebody who knows the answer and they refuse to tell you the answer? Once again, this happens a lot with my children. They will give me a trivia thing about some state capital or what some state bird is from their geography class. And I'm like, I don't know. But they don't accept that answer, by the way. They say, no guess, no guess. I'm like, so I guess. And then they make fun of me for getting it wrong. But you have that question, and you know there's an answer. But do you know that there's actually no answer given in this text? When David wonders, God, why do you even pay attention to us? David does not give us an answer, and neither does the psalm. The next verse connects to it. For thou hast made him. But we have to ask ourselves the question, is that for there to tell us the reason? God pays attention to us because he's given us glory. Can I say that that's not a reason? Because it just pushes the why question further down the road. We have to then ask ourselves, not why does God care for us, but why did God give us glory? And we're in this perpetual cycle of why. So it doesn't give us the reason what it does if it amplifies the question. Why do you care for us? You did all this and we don't understand why. The focus needs to be on God in this case. After all, that's what the parallelism from verse 4, as well as the whole structure. This is about God. To use systematic terms, you know you have your systematics, your anthropology. This is a key text for anthropology, talking about how man was made. But yet the psalm itself isn't about man. It's about God and then what man is in light of that revelation. Notice that in verse 5, as David continues to list off what God has done in paying attention to man... His tense has changed. Verse 4 is present. Verse 5 is past. And you say, congratulations, Dr. Goodwill. You can pass basic English. I know. (laughs) Miracles of miracles. It can happen. No longer is David talking about his present condition, but he starts to describe God's creative act that we have recorded in Genesis chapter 1, 26 through 28, when God chose to make man in his own image. And again, we don't know fully why, but just that God did. 
How did God pay attention to man in the creative act? Well, he made us in an elevated position. Verse 5, Thou hast made him a little lower than the angels. Yes, we're not as powerful, if you would, as an angelic being. But notice that little word, little. It's like I think of it like angel, us, angel, us, right there. Why are we so close? I think Genesis 1 gives us the answer, the image of God. Now, I just have to address it. Some of you might have something in front of you, a Bible, that doesn't say angels. It might say God, or it might say divine beings, or something to that effect. Can I just say, based on the context, based on the flexibility of the word, and based on how Hebrews chapter 2 quotes this context, angels is I think the best way to understand it. God made us with glory and honor. He crowned us with it. This word of crown isn't just a setting of this on our head. It has the idea of being surrounded with his glory. How? Again, because of the image of God that he has made in us. Why, God, did you decide to do that? I don't know. But it points us back to his grandeur. How else does God show his grandeur by paying attention to man? First, he created us in an elevated position. Second, he gave us authority over creation. Notice that word in verse 6. You made him to have dominion. Authority over creation. It's not that we were so special and we tamed the land. It's that God set us in there. I love the rest of the verse because of how often it's pointing us back to God. Thou, you made him over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. Even the authority that we have over the rest of creation doesn't exalt us. It exalts the God who gifted that to us. Why are the animals here? You know, I can't wait till the day where I walk home and I have to ask that same question. Because, again, according to my children, they want 70 cats. It's going to be rough growing up. But verse 6 says, all things under his feet. All things means all, and that's all that all things mean. So why do we have this here? All the sheep and the oxen, the beasts and the fowl. It's just David continuing to say, how is it that God could have given us all these things? It's incredible. God is declaring his grandeur to us and how he's paying attention to us, lowly man. I think if we focus too much on what this is saying about us, we're going to miss the whole point of the psalm, which is, how is this helping us see God? Now, I've already alluded to the point that Hebrews chapter 2 does quote this text in talking about Jesus. And I don't think, though, that Psalm 8 is necessarily messianic, a prophecy of Jesus any more than Genesis 1, 26 through 28, is a prophecy of Jesus. What is happening here is David is meditating on the creation account, and he's talking about all that God has done for man, how he has worked for our 
benefit. How he's given us glory and authority. How he's given us dominion. But what is the truth? The truth is we've kind of messed things up, haven't we? Which is where Hebrews chapter 2 picks up on this and says, yes, God has given that in creation, but do you know that the only ideal man who has actually lived that out is? And that's how he gets to Jesus. So where does this leave us today? Again, I would have loved it if David would have just said something like, footnote, therefore my soul should hope in God. Footnote, therefore I should proclaim everything about God to the, gener- to the generations that follow after me. But he doesn't. Instead, he says, God, God, God. God, he's declaring his grandeur. But at the same time, I think there are some very important implications for our thoughts and actions that we need to take away from this. Why do we think David was writing this? Because he was meditating on God's creative work, which he would have had recorded in Genesis 1. Maybe that means that we need to take more time ourselves and meditate on God's mighty works. Because so often in our day, we're climbing up that hill on the hike. We know that God's grandeur is around us. But we need those moments of meditation where the sun comes over the mountain, clears up the fog, and we say, wow, that's my God. Maybe you'll have an opportunity at lunch to meditate with each other on what God is doing for you and what he's done in your life. Maybe you have one of those journals that, like many of mine, have about 10 pages filled out. Maybe at the very least you have to pick up that 11th page and just tonight write a whole page about who God is and what he's doing for you. So first, we can meditate on the mighty works of God, which should bring us to what David is actually doing in this passage, and that is praising God. Praising God for what he is worth. This is the natural conclusion to any meditation on God, but to praise him. We sing, we pray, we proclaim him to others as acts of praise. We meditate, we praise And the third application is actually a result of the first two. We humble ourselves. Who is Andrew Goodwill? That you, God, are mindful of him. Who am I that you should care for me? Yet it's a fact, God, that you made me a little lower than the angels, and you have crowned me with glory and honor, and you've given me a part of this dominion, how excellent is your name? How humbling that is God to me. The fact of the matter is, is our opinion of ourselves is directly correlated to our opinion of God. When we are humbled, we see God's grandeur. When we are proud, 
we don't actually understand who God is. Meditate, praise, humble yourself. Number four, trust. He's the one who uses weak things. The toddler babbling on stops God's mighty enemies. If God can do that and show his grandeur, what can God do in your life? You can trust God to make him big in your life and to help you as you set the right priority and invest in his word and pray to him daily, even though there's these assignments coming due. You can trust God to care for your family back home that are going through the crisis. He's the one who can bear that burden and show his grandeur. He doesn't call you to do that. Trust God to provide and equip you for what he has called you to do. Just trust God. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Because you've set your splendor above the heavens, you used the weak to confound the mighty, you bestowed glory and authority on man, and you pay attention to him. Let's meditate on our God. Praise our God, humble ourselves before him, and trust him, because he is this God. Our Father, we love you, and we are amazed at who you are and what you've done for us. Take these truths, ingrain them upon our heart. May we see you in all of your grandeur as we go throughout our day, and then work in us the appropriate response in what we think, feel, say, and do. We love you, God. It's in Jesus' name we pray.